Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Carla Goldstein. Carla is a pioneer in women's leadership with 25 years of public policy experience, serving as Omega Institute's Chief External Affairs Officer to help Omega connect its work to change-making efforts around the world. She's also the co-founder of the Omega Women's Leadership Center, a hub for convening, inspiring, and training women to do power differently. So welcome to the podcast, Carla. I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. It's really good to be be with you. So uh, I think our audience would love to know more about Omega and specifically how you have been involved in in developing um, the focus around and around women and and especially in today's climate, it's so uh, so important for us to hear. Well, Omega is a 41-year-old nonprofit organization that is really based on the idea that we're always growing. So it's a lifelong learning organization. And we see about 23,000 people a year at our home in Rhinebeck, New York, which is in the beautiful Hudson Valley. And we see about 2 million people online, and that's growing. And what, what attracted me to Omega uh, was Omega's interest in really looking at the relationship between how individual people heal and how society heals and grows. Like what, what's happening uh, to each of us in our own lives as individuals, as we grow and we learn and how do we take our wisdom our personal wisdom and apply that to helping change systems and structures so that we're living in a, in a more healed world. Mm. I know that you said in a Forbes interview a few years ago about connecting me and we, I thought that was such a great phrase. Yeah. You know, we, we're, especially in American culture, we're trained in this rugged individualism, this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, we're an island and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that's just really not how life works. Right. Um, each of us, of course, is an individual, but we are wholly, entirely, completely interdependent on all other living things in the world. And so it's, it's kind of a myopic view of life to just think like it's just all about us. And that, that, that it's very liberating, you know, when you say, wait a minute, you know, it's not just about me, nor uh, am I all alone. So it's, it's liberating in a lot of different ways to say, wow, we live in an interdependent universe. And I have to take care of me. And I also have to take care of we, because the boundaries between those two things are much less solid than we think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's why this concept of impact, which is, of course, the topic of the podcast is so powerful, because it's not just about our own 
personal development and evolution. It's also about what are we contributing? How are we making the world a better place? Exactly. Um, you know, as we grow and develop, almost every human being wants to find their place in the universe, have a sense of purpose sure. and meaning and contribution. And uh, that that's all about figuring out, you know, what, what's my individual gift that I have to give and how can I give it so that others are better, healthier, the planet is, is more restored. And that's really what we've been programming towards at Omega is helping people, you know, find that sense of purposefulness and spiritual growth and understanding of who they are. I mean, it's a big, it's a big universe out there. And, <laughs> and most of us, most of us can feel pretty lost at sea or in space. Um, and, and it helps to be in community and be connected to other people and realize like so many of us are grappling with the same fundamental issues. Even if we're very different on the surface level of what we're interested in or where we grew up or what our families were like, you know, the end of the day, people want to be loved, they want to be connected, and they want to be healthy, and they want to be able to explore, um, explore their own depths and explore the, the world around us. And, you know, one of the things that we're all grappling with, or many, many people are grappling with now, is this very deep division, uh, political division, mm -hmm. and also wealth division, you know, right. What, right. What, what kind of opportunities do people have? who have greater access to wealth and resources and education um, and what happens when people have different kinds of privilege to be in the world in a way based on their, ra their race or their class or their status of some kind. And so in a way, I feel like we're living, even though it is a very turbulent time, feels like a very exciting time because in some way, we're pulling down a lot of curtains. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we're not going to be able to hide behind the curtains um, for for much longer. And you know, we're living in this era of transparency, and it can be very exhausting to be in a constant state of transparency. <laughs> right. But I think that what what is being revealed, even if it's painful, is is the path forward to to finding our way to a more loving and kind and balanced uh, way of being together in a human community. Well, I love hearing you say that because I've been, uh, I'm, I'm the constant seeker of the silver lining. And in, in my perception, it feels like we have an opportunity now that there is this transparency to heal some things. I mean, racism, for example, I think there was uh -huh. this kind of cultural myth, at least among white people of, um, well, this is kind of a resolved problem, or there's maybe some vestiges, but now that it's clear that that's not the case, we can at least do something about it and step up and really resolve the issue rather than keeping it hidden. Yeah. I mean, one one of the things that's interesting, if you look at different countries and how they've dealt with their histories of um, abhorrent events, slavery, holocausts, war, you know, many of the countries have done things to memorialize those events, to begin to have some kind of reconciliation. And in mm -hmm. our country, 
Um, that is just beginning. We, we have two huge original sins in our country. One is uh, what happened to the original peoples of this land, and the other is uh, slavery from uh, a people who lived in Africa. And I was very moved. I haven't been there yet, but I, I have been moved by reading about the lynching memorial. Um, yeah. It's called the National Memorial for Peace and Justice mm-hmm. in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, it's, it's so profound to uh, look at art that depicts the, the violence and the suffering um, of people who were brought against their will to this country and put into bondage and slavery. And mm-hmm. so these, these, these things open up, you know, the chasms of the possibility for healing, for confrontation, for reconciliation. It's truth and reconciliation. There are a lot of stories that haven't been told. And what we're seeing now in the age of a more democratized uh, access to information with social media is people telling their stories, their personal stories, their cultural stories, um, you know, the kinds of violence that were hidden, that went unseen. Um, it can't happen anymore. I mean, it still can happen, but, but there's more and more access to being a witness. Yes. And once, once we are a witness, then the question comes squarely into our moral uh, onto our moral shoulders, what what do we do with that? Yeah. What is our moral and ethical obligation to um, move towards healing and reconciliation of some of these very, very um, unhumane ways that, that we have lived together? And I, I, I was just with a, a remarkable teacher Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, mm-hmm. and yeah. she talks about it as um, the reason that we need to take curative and healing action. Those those who are in a more privileged position, it's not because we need to help those in a less privileged position, which is, of course, you know, so much of the motivation is people want to stamp out the suffering of the world, but really it's to reclaim our own humanity. For, for people who are in a more privileged position and whose privilege allows them to escape the suffering of those who are less privileged, it's about restoring our own wholeness, our own humanity to take action to end suffering. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also a piece of new awareness and new consciousness is to kind of step out of being saviors for those of us who are, you know, I, myself, I'm a white woman uh, middle, you know, middle class person with education and opportunities, and so how to how to step um, step into a different posture. The other thing she said, which I thought was so important, is that as we go into these conversations about race and privilege, there's so much conversation now about white privilege that it's continuing to center whiteness. And the whole point <laughs> is to stop centering whiteness into, in the mi- middle of the universe and to really um, heal our humanity by, by stepping back and making space for, for everybody. And uh, this, is, this is the holy work of our time. That is such a powerful thing to say, the holy work of our time. I love that. And, and the things you've just shared are um, 
they're so uh, not just timely for us, but universal at the same time. I think that some of the things that have happened recently feel like an abandonment of those essential values of compassion and uh, connection with others. And uh, so, yeah, it's great to to hear those things being brought to the fore and really being discussed and addressed. And I know that you've been involved a great deal with this question of power, which I, I think is certainly underlying those issues of, of white privilege and, um, and, and also um, it's something that women have wrestled with as well in terms of what's a definition of power that we can live with. I mean, the sense of dominance isn't something that feels comfortable for most women. And I know you've done a tremendous amount of work in that realm. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me about the current paradigm of power, which is it's, it's nestled in a, in a narrative, in a story, because um, our lifespans are so short, you know, if we're lucky, we bump up and get to 100. But in the scheme of things, in the span of time, it's a very short time. So we're born, we get told a story, that's what culture is, you know, we come into this cultural story of who we are and what we are and how we're going to relate to each other. And the, the current story, which is breaking down and changing, which is, I think, where we see all of this conflict, the current story, which is that, hey, you know, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. That's just the way it is. It's the nature of things. It's the nature of things that some people have uh, more power and resource than others. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And, you know, do the best you can to get by. It's a competitive paradigm. And we implicit in that is that it's inherent in nature you know that it's either it's the will of god or it's inherent in nature it's the way that it is and will always be what i have been studying and finding liberating is that that paradigm of power is really kind of an infant um in human history so human beings in our current form have been around about two hundred thousand years and it's only the last four thousand years that we've been living in this, you know, kind of, it's a system of patriarchy, uh, which is really a system of dominance. Most people, when they hear the word patriarchy, they think, uh-oh, we're going to talk about how women, how, how men are bad to women and women hate men for doing it. And that, mm-hmm. that's not what I mean when, when I talk about patriarchy, but patriarchy mm-hmm. is, it's a, it's a word that defines, um, the power relationships that have existed over the last 4,000 years, and it stands for the idea that men will have all of the power and all of the primary institutions in society, in the law, in education, in economy. And before patriarchy came into being about four, five, six thousand years ago, some might say 10,000 years, before that happened, uh, for the 190,000 other years (laughs) that human beings were evolving, uh, we were in hunter-gatherer, you know, relationships, and those relationships, by most accounts, most historians believe, and it's not like it was perfect, and it's not like there wasn't aggression, but by and large, the gender relationships were far more egalitarian. Mm -hmm. And the relationship that human beings had to land was also, you know, live lightly on the land. There wasn't 
first of all, if you're moving around, you can't take anything with you. <laughs> you know, right. you're not car- carrying children was carrying babies was a very large burden to to being mobile and 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 moving from one location to another. Hmm. But mo- uh, historians really peg the beginning of patriarchy to the beginning of agriculture. Okay. Because agriculture meant that we had to actually stand still. Mm-hmm. Instead of moving to find our food, we were planting food, harvesting food, and that meant we had to stand still. And the main thing that that also meant was we needed to begin to control land and own land. And that whole concept of owning and dominating was sort of the beginning of this idea that power will be used to dominate. And then people who had land had excess resource, excess food, and that gave them more power. And uh, some people actually think that women may have been some of the original slaves, because um, once you are working land, you need, you need people to harvest the land. And so uh, very often women and children were the ones who uh, harvested the agricultural crops the the way that we've been thinking about patriarchy as being sort of uh, I, I know some people certainly believe that it's just the natural course of things and i recently read something about uh how darwin has been misrepresented even in the theory of natural selection i go back to what you said about nature and how well this is just the law of nature and in fact it, it wasn't what he was saying and and you're saying something similar in the sense that this is not not the, the natural order of things. It's something that's evolved because of the circumstances of controlling and owning land. Um, right, right. The, the, you know, it's the historical conditions and how we evolved um, after agriculture came into being. Uh, it sort of introduced the concept of dominance and controlling things and animals, and people. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a new relational and social construct. And then how you organize who's going to control who, um, you know, that sort of led the way to the idea of, of controlling women um, and, and, and slaves, people who were in a poor caste, um, who could be easily categorized as, oh, we're going to control these people. And what, one of the things that uh, was very important to control was reproduction, because as soon as you have things, then you have heirs, people you're going to pass your wealth to. And the idea of controlling wealth over time and in a family was a new construct. And so making sure that uh, there was a... a a mother whose children were only yours <laughs> was a really important concept. And so this is really where the whole idea of controlling women's fertility and reproduct- reproductive lives sort of entered the picture. And, you know, over, over time, over this four to 10,000 year period patriarchy, this concept that men would control women's lives and women would not be autonomous beings uh, really spread and uh, to almost every single country and, and, and place in the world. Uh, there sort of is not a place that hasn't been touched by it. 
uh, even in the more egalitarian original people's cultures, patriarchy was so pervasive, uh, so, per, you know, so uh, powerful that as those cultures themselves suffered under patriarchy, you see the, you see the capacity to hold on to those egalitarian cultural norms be corrupted by patriarchy. So, so here we are, uh, all these thousands of years later, what I take some optimism from is that knowing that it was not always this way, and then, you know, that it came out of these historical conditions, you know that, well, historical conditions can actually end this period of patriarchy. And I think that that is what we're beginning to see as, as uh, more women have access to education and technology and wealth. Um, you see the push, the Me Too movement, you know, the insistence that we're just not going to tolerate the sexual violence or violence against us anymore. And it's beginning to happen. And there's a lot of resistance around it, but you can, you can see the breaking of the weight mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the scales uh, changing their balance. And the other thing that I draw optimism from is uh, the whole field of biomimicry, which is examining really what, what is happening in nature. And there's a wonderful woman, a biologist, Janine Benyus, who is the the mother, the foremother of biomimicry. And uh, her insights are that all of nature, no matter where, where you're looking, all of nature has a common set of operating principles. And those operating principles are being diverse, being generous, being cooperative, and being networked. That is the fundamental operating system of the universe, no matter where you look. And that networks are really the connective fiber. If you look at um, uh, people, some people call this the the wood wide web, Mm -hmm. which is the mushroom network. There's been a lot written. Ted talks about the mushroom network now. 90%, 90% of all land plants are connected by this filial network of uh, mushroom roots right underneath uh, the surface of the earth. And through those filaments, plants transmit nutrients to each other. If, If a tree is very tall and has access to the sun, it'll take those nutrients and transfer it through its root system to a bush, another, another species altogether that has a very shallow mm-hmm. uh, root system and that doesn't have access to the sun. Yeah, I've and been, so, been reading yeah. about that in a book, it's The Secret Life of Trees. It's a similar sort of, it's it's all very much part of what you're describing, of, of explaining how individual trees are not individual organisms that have very little relationship to those around them. It's this incredible network of connection between them, which I, I wonder if that, perception, I mean, the the biomimicry work is really uh, a different lens kind of looking at nature. I mean, if you come to nature with this lens of of competition, and uh, of course, you're going to see things that substantiate what you already believe, whereas um, the, this, the woman that you described, uh, the foremother of biomimicry, um, she's... Janine Benyus. Right. She's coming at it perhaps from a, an entirely different perception. I, I, I'm a scientist by training myself, and I, 
I came to believe that there's no such thing as real scientific objectivity. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, this and 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 this goes to what we were talking about before, which is the power of the story. And one of the big uh, impacts of patriarchy is that women, for all those thousands of years, were actually not allowed to contribute to meaning making. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the meaning making is like. What do we say? What is the story of what's going on here on planet Earth? We're making meaning of our experience. And women have not been part of that endeavor. We haven't been able to contribute. I mean, not like we don't contribute at all, but our understanding, our experiences, our interpretation of the big picture of what we think is happening here has not been allowed to be part of the larger story. So what, what I think we need to all be doing is helping not get rid altogether. It's not like, Oh, the male story is all bad, Sure, but how to integrate the experience and the visions and the understanding that women bring to the table. And I think that that, that piece of understanding really is about this connectedness. It really is about like, you know, if you look around and you look with this different eye, what you see is this, just extraordinary, extraordinary web of life. I mean, we call it a web of life. And it is the connectedness, the cooperation, the collaboration that, and the diversity, the richness that makes this whole, uh, makes this whole thing go in, in extraordinary ways. So if we start telling a different story, which is why your podcast and all of your work is so important, um, you know, drip by drip, the cultural narrative will change and will shift and is changing and is shifting. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'd love to kind of get into uh, and explore a little bit how how you personally are um, involved with and, and really um, playing a role in this. And, and in, in terms of, uh, your, I mean, your own diversity of experience. You you were at Planned Parenthood for a long time. You went to law school and and now um, your work is is out of that as well as what you've you've described and what you're currently doing. How do you feel that you personally are having an impact in this kind of work? How do you see your role in that? Well I really I love the fact that I went to law school um, because it was like getting a graduate degree in the patriarchy, you know, like I sort of like, I really understand now the, uh, it's like an engineering degree in, um, in how it is that we keep these oppressive laws in place. Mm. So, uh, and I was drawn to it really for that, that reason I grew up, um, I was born in the early sixties. My parents were activists, but they got divorced when I was very young. So it was really just me and my mom. And um, the experience growing up with a single parent who, at the time, you know, really had to struggle for resources, gave me an orientation uh, into the world that was very vital. Uh, I also, I, I, I moved from New York, which was pretty integrated, even in the early 60s, New York that I lived in, and my, my own community was a very integrated community. Um, 
when we moved to Florida, was the very first year of busing. And even as a young kid, nine years old, I was like, what is this? This is fundamentally not right. You know, this is, this is terrible. This is awful. So painful. Um, so those were my early, early orientations. And then when I first started college, I was in Tallahassee, Florida, the year that the Equal Rights Amendment was pending before the country. And I had no idea what it meant. I only knew everybody was all freaked out about it. And the National Organization for Women sent uh, Eleanor Smeal came down to Tallahassee, Florida to help organize people to lobby because Tallahassee is the, the capital of Florida hmm. and the state had to adopt. It was one of two states left that if they voted yes, the, the ERA would pass. If they voted no, that was it. The chance was over. So as a young student, I remember vividly, you know, standing on the corner listening to Ellie Smeal read the three sentences of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was so simple. It was like, you know, women will be equal under the law. Nothing in the law can make this different, and so it will be the law. You know, it was just like <laughs> very, very straightforward. And I'm like, what? What? And and I began, you know, I was a student lobbyist. And, the, of course, it did not pass in Florida. And to this day, we're still struggling to have an Equal Rights Amendment passed into law. But that experience really uh, provoked in me the idea that change could be made, that people can be engaged and involved civically and make a difference. And so for the first 20 years of my professional life, that's really what I did. I, was, I worked inside and outside the legislative process. As you say, I worked with Planned Parenthood. Um, and it was... Uh, you know, it was very interesting to see how democracy works. Being in the heart of the system, like being on the inside of the system, you really learn and can see the levers of power and how the momentum to keep the power relationships that are in place in place, how that plays out. And so um, I, I began to feel frustrated and like, you know, this is so hard to make any real change in a system that has this appearance of being open and democratic. And in fact, changes do happen. I mean, we have really important incremental change that ha happens through the legislative process. But the combination of that, and in my early 40s, I had a, a healthcare crisis and I had two young kids and I was just, I was like, there has to be a different way to come at all of this. And that's when I found Omega. And what I was intrigued by Omega and why I've stayed, I've been there 13 years, is that kind of at the core of all of it, it's about love and, and trying to find the common humanity we all share and being open to, you know, the mysteries of the universe and not being so rigid and not being, there's, there's, there's righteousness, um, but but there's also you know there's a there, there's a softness that I found missing in the big legislative battles of the day that I personally wanted to inhabit as part of my toolkit for change. You know, it's just it was very personal. I I wanted to live in a place where I could. Um, 
not be shutting my heart down all the time, yeah. not be angry and in a rage all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, what, what, where I've sort of come to, especially in this time of such upheaval, is that there's a real difference between, you know, being able to discern what's wrong and saying, this is wrong, I believe this is morally wrong, and coming at that discernment from a place of an open heart and still acknowledging the humanity in somebody you wildly disagree with. <laughs> and that is, um, that is such a challenge. And it's, it's a big challenge. But I think that it's that if, if we don't figure out how to do that, yeah. if we don't practice that, I don't know how we ever get out of the box yeah. of going to war to kill each other when we disagree. Well, like I, I just that's a, that's that's the extreme, you know, far end of the result of of that posture. And so I'm I'm really committed myself to practicing the kind of peace in myself and in my relationships that I want to see in the world because I think, you know, the micro is the macro and the macro is the micro. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how we would ever get there if we were just um, always holding that closed posture of self-righteousness and not not ever opening to the possibility that somebody else might see something different that, that we don't see. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the it's such a challenge to hold that space of I strongly and strenuously disagree and yet as you said, acknowledging the humanity, because I think what happens with activism is it sometimes filters in, it just, it shifts into this against energy. And in that space, it's very difficult to even see the other perspective because you're pushing so hard that there's no openness, there's no invitation to understand. And right. it's difficult to have a, a healing, restorative conversation when there's a a combativeness about it. So I, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, such a powerful thing for us to acknowledge, especially now. And you're, you're playing a big role in that. Well, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm part of, I'm part of an organization uh, on their advisory council called living room conversations. Mm-hmm. And it was started by the same woman who uh, was a co-founder of MoveOn.org, And she, Joan Blades, She's really brilliant, and there's actually a TED Talk about living room conversations that she did last year at TED Women, if people want to watch it. Um, She brings people together. She has a whole formula. You can go onto their website and find it, of bringing people who are on opposing sides together to discuss issues. And the goal is not persuasion. The goal is not to change somebody's mind. It's just to build that connective relational tissue. Because at the end of the day, and this is what I think – particularly women, whether it is, you know, by historic tradition or somewhat by nature, by nurture, we don't know. I think the majority of women um, really do have an understanding that it's all relationships. It's all relationships. We're all Mm -hmm. related to each other and we have to feed those relationships. We have to tend those relationships. We have to care, care for them or they fray and break. And when they're frayed and broken, that is when we do inhumane things. 
to each other. Yeah. Well, it's so great to hear about another organization that's doing that. I know uh, one of the podcast interviews I've done uh, was with uh, Lori Mulvey, who's the head of a group at University of Pennsylvania. They're doing conversations where they're bringing together soldiers who are about to be posted to um, the Middle East and, and Iraq and Afghanistan, and they are engaging them in conversation before they go with village leaders. And I think that kind of thing is so powerful to be able to gather and understand and have empathetic connection and conversation. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I would love, I'm going to I'm going to look that up. Yeah, well I'll I'll send you the link, but I'll I'll include it with the podcast as well because I think it's uh it's so exciting to hear about organizations that are really making a difference in that way and and living room conversations sound like it's uh sounds like it's it's doing that great work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean when you break bread with somebody and when you uh, – th- another organization that's doing amazing work like that is also called is called Women Without Borders. They're in Vienna. Mm. And they work with mothers, you know, who are on all sides of conflict in some of the most conflict-ridden parts of the world as an alternative security system. It's just like what you're saying, you know, going in and having these talks before you – are entering into combat and these i the the idea of reaching people before we get into the to the hot you know rage filled um embattled spaces mm-hmm. that's really where we need to be putting our efforts so i think you i think more and more and more of these kinds of efforts are happening yeah what what kinds of things get in the way for you of doing this work? Because it's an ongoing challenge. I mean, you're constantly being called on to bring love into a situation that that feels uh, not not full of love when you begin. How, what can you give us? Maybe even a, an example of a scenario where you've if you had some an obstacle in in the work that you're doing and you've been able to move through it, I always think it's valuable for people to hear that. Well, I, you know, I have been a meditator for many years now, and I've had a yoga practice. Not like I do it all the time. It's not like I do it consistently across a year, um, but over time, when you have you know, any kind of mindfulness practice that allows you to come into the moment, into your breath and intercede and give yourself a shake, (laughs) like stop being reactive, create some space here. Um, That ability to control the cascading reactivity Mm -hmm. has been really one of my top, top tools and it doesn't always work, but it often works. And I've given examples since since you wanted an example. Um, I have, you know, very very uh, close colleague who is um, a woman of color who I, in a you know, was not my intention, but I spoke over her. I interrupted her, mm. and this hurt her very much. And you know, we had a lot of we had some like in the moment conflict about it, and my practice, my ability to breathe and be quiet and listen allowed us to hear each other and move through the conflict 
in a way that if I didn't have that practice, I don't think we would have been because I just would have been defensive and that would have shut her down. And, you know, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have we wouldn't have made progress. And, and so that that would be like in a in an instance where I I was the one who was stepping over. And then when somebody steps on me, it's the same kind of practice. In fact, as a matter of fact, today I was on a train and a man uh, sat next to me and he was really not respecting me at all. Mm. He was like taking up a lot of space. He kept asking me very personal and strange questions. Wow. And I said to him, you know, I said to him, you know, listen, I, I'm, I'm a friendly person, but I, I really don't feel like talking today. So thank you very much. And he just kept, he just kept doing it. Mm -hmm. And I had all of these things going on inside my body, <laughs> you know, like that yeah. things I wanted to say, things I wanted to do, and I wanted to hurt him. Like the impulse is when somebody hurts you, you want to hurt them back. Mm -hmm. And I was able to just keep a hold of myself and be clear with him. And I finally ended up, I actually ended up relocating my seat, but I didn't do it in a way, you know, that was like designed to wound. I was right. just very clear and kept breathing and trying to, trying to create that space around the situation so that it doesn't escalate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the whole game is about de-escalation or non-escalation in, in any kind of a conflict. So those are the skills that I use like on a day-to-day -day basis is like creating space because conflict creates friction mm -hmm. and friction creates reactivity. And when you're in reactivity mode, you're going to do things that you might really, if you had the opportunity, choose not to do. Yeah. Well, and your your presence, I mean, I think that's the other advantage of a mindfulness practice is your presence to what's going on in your body and then a decision to pause and be able to respond in a way that you feel you want to, uh, the way that you want to respond is so important. And the those situations are such challenges. I think most people can relate to, to both of those where we're um, feeling, you know, you could potentially go into a very reactive defensive posture and uh, being able to pause and step back and de-escalate um, is, is so valuable. Um, well, uh, Carla, there's, I mean, there's so many things that I feel we could talk about, and this is, uh, this has been so valuable. I, I just, uh, I, I actually have three rapid round questions that I, I always wrap up uh, interviews with, if you're game. Uh, sure, sure. Okay, great. So, um, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned about having impact? You never know where it's coming from or where it's going. <laughs> yeah, you, really. I mean, that that goes to our interdependence. Um, you can have the smallest interaction with somebody that uh, goes somewhere that you don't even know that it happened. You don't even know that that, that smile you gave somebody, that tender moment, that presence of holding or listening to somebody that created in them a feeling of strength or affirmation or direction, and then they take it and they go, you know, it's like the butterfly wing, the mm -hmm. butterfly effect. Yeah. You, 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 th that's the th thing I've learned is that you don't, you don't really know what the fruits of your labor will have, but that the importance is about the, the labor. <laughs> it's about planting <laughs> the seeds. Yeah. You just keep planting the seeds 
and hope for the best, you know, and you, you, you can only be so attached to the outcome because at the end of the day, we don't, we don't know. We don't know where, where that seed and when and if that seed is ever going to bloom. But if our intention is about healing and giving love and repairing the world, uh, that's all we can do. Yeah. That's all we can do. Mm. Well, that really leads really well into the second question, which is what's the one thing that you've consistently done that's contributed to your impact the most? I would say it's build relationships. Build relationships with other people who share values and who have the same aspirations for bringing more healing and love into the world. Um, Because we can't do anything alone. So my effectiveness is really, I believe my effectiveness is only as effective as my ability to build good, strong, meaningful relationships with other people who, who are interested in doing the same kind of thing. And the last question is, um, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd share with other people who are asking themselves, I want to have impact. I, I don't know how to do it. How, what's the best way for me f- to move forward? What, what advice would you give them? Um, I think that most people have a sense of what makes them tick, makes them happy, makes them feel joyful, energized, and, you know, what we're good at, basically, what we're good at. And so offering what we're good at in any way in one's own community is is a really great way to get started or to restart if you're stalled, um, you know, figure out what you're most concerned about. Like for me, I, I've taken sort of this very long hiatus from politics. Um, and after this last election, I'm like, wow, I have got to get back involved. <laughs> and I forgot that I'm good. I forgot I'm good at it, you know, and, and how much really it does interest me. It interests me. And so I've begun to get involved in, in the political uh, elections of my own local community. And I'm, I'm surprised at how happy it makes me, how mm. even regardless of, irregardless of the outcome, although that is going to be important, um, being with other people who want to do the same thing and working in concert, working together for change really makes me feel good. Mm, that's great. Well, maybe you'll run for office at some point. You see your name on a ballot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there are a lot, a lot, a lot of women. I think Emily's list is like, I don't know, ten, over 10 times wow. what they normally see in applications for support for elected office. Oh, so I think women have to run. More women should run at every level of, of elected office. And it's not just because, oh, just because you're a woman, you're automatically better. But the fact yeah. is, we are so, so, so still underrepresented and we need we need all of us to be at the table. Yeah, that's certainly true. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're supporting those women that are choosing to do that. So I, Carla, thank you so much for being here today. I, I love how thoughtful you are about the, the historical context and then bringing it into the present and your focus on love. I think that is kind of the the essence of what all this is about of of attempts to resolve differences and to look at patriarchy and to bring women into a, a position of 
power and contribution and, and allow us all to be connected. So thank you so much for the work you do and for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, it's really conversations like this, changing the narrative through podcasts like yours. That's how we're going to do it. So yeah. can't wait to talk to you again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I, look for th- I look forward to that too. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, our website is eomega.org, and uh, my address is on there, and uh, lots of lots of other avenues to connect with Omega through our website. Great. Well, thank you again, Carla, and thank you um, for. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the future and, and hearing about that. Oh, thanks so much. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.